Good evening, good evening from very humid Abidjan. It's currently uh, 11.15 in the evening. Uh, we just got home from another day of outstanding African football with many, many unexpected results. Uh, this is the AFCON Diaries Day 2. I uh, <laughs> My voice cracked. I'm actually not going to uh, comment on the Nigeria-Equatorial Guinea match because uh, I was running around uh, early in the morning and early in the afternoon. I didn't get a chance to watch it. Uh, when I get a, a chance to watch it back, I'll, hopefully that'll inform my analysis later on in the tournament. But I was at the Stade Felix Oufoué Boigny to watch Egypt take on Mozambique and to watch Ghana take on Cape Verde. I watched both of those matches. Here are my thoughts. Egypt, before the tournament, I mean, they were one of my four favorites alongside Morocco, Senegal, and uh, Morocco, Senegal, Egypt, and ah, Cote d'Ivoire, of course. Why did we say that they were one of the favorites? Well, they showed that they had the know-how to get there. They've made it to two out of the last three AFCON finals. Mohamed Salah, this is a defining part of his legacy. He has never won an AFCON, and you have to imagine that, you know, it's eating away at him and that he was going to do everything he could to win an AFCON. The form of their attacking front line of the likes of Trezeguet, Marmouche, Mustafa, and Salah, of course, at, at a very high top level, and so you would think that that would carry over and on into the tournament. And so that's why they were considered, you know, uh, favorites, in my opinion. They show up today. And if you watch the Egypt preview on this channel, and if you spoke to Egyptians, as I did, I spoke to many Egyptian colleagues of mine, they were expecting this Egyptian side to not be as, let's say, defensive, under quotes, if you want to say that's how they played in 2017 and 2021. Um, no, on the contrary, with the new coach, Rui Vittoria, they were expected to be a more balanced side, meaning that they were going to have a little more courage, a little more willingness to attack, um, to leave their zone, to uh, try and break down opposing defenses. This was on full display in the opening match. Rui Vittoria, instead of going for the 4-3-3, you know, with that midfield three of more ball-playing midfielders, not Hamdi Fathi, not Tariq Hamid, no, Imam Ashur and Marwan Atiyah, players that can carry the ball forward, can distribute, can create, can score. Rui Vittoria opts for a 4-2-3-1. So he does play Hamdi Fathi in a double pivot with Mohamed Al-Nani, and their roles were almost strictly defensive. We move Mohamed Salah from the right wing into the middle behind the striker Mohamed Mustafa. Trezeguet in his habitual left wing spot, but we throw on Zizou on the right wing. Zizou plays his local football uh, in Egypt. He's somebody that's been, you know, uh, I think pretty reliable player for Egypt and for uh, Zamalek, his club, for, for quite a long time. Um, I didn't think he had a poor match, but it was interesting to see moving from a 4 3 3 where Salah was going to be maybe a little more uh, free. Uh, or I shouldn't say free, but a little closer to the attacker, to the striker, into this four-two-three-one where he was sort of drifting around everywhere. So he actually was free. Um, and initially, I didn't think it was a horrible idea. I could see what Rivatoria was trying to do. I mean, Mohamed Salah this season in the Premier League. If you listen to what, for example, Mohamed Qutb was saying on this on the Egypt pre Egypt preview on his channel, saying he was yes scoring goals, but he's also becoming more of a provider. And that if Darwin Nunes scored, you know, half the amount of goals. That Mohammed that have the amount of chances that Mohammed Salah created for him, uh, he'd probably be the Premier League top scorer at the moment, um, and so I could understand giving him that freedom 
to say, you know what, you don't have to do any defensive duties. Uh, when we're out of possession, you can be right next to the striker and just you know try to force the opposing possession one way or the other. You don't have to press too hard. You don't have to worry about closing down midfielders. But when we have possession, drift between the lines, be a menace, basically. Be very, very difficult to mark out of the game for the opposing, opposing team. Considering, by the way, that Mozambique's uh, Atletico Madrid defender, Reynaldo, Enildo Pluto, um, is left back. And so he, he's the one that would have been marking Salah if he started on the right wing. Maybe that was influenced, uh, that influenced Rivitoria. During the press conference, I asked Rivitoria why he decided to opt for this tactical system of a 4-2-3-1 instead of a 4-3-3. He didn't really give me an answer. He said, yeah, we have two systems that provide solutions, and, and that's pretty much it. Anyways, Egypt scored early, Mohamed Mustafa, and it's one of those goals that... It's almost impressive how quickly he turned and hit the ball on target. It's, it's, it's not almost impressive. It's very impressive, actually. It's almost unbelievable. I, blink of an eye and you miss it and he showed that you know that instinct of knowing where the goal is he showed that ferociousness that aggressiveness that Mohammed Mustafa has and that's really useful on the African continent so they go up and then even I think in the first 20-30 minutes they're taking the game to Mozambique and you're thinking you know this this is the Egypt that we were expecting they just need a second goal and that second goal never comes and towards the end of the first half uh, Mozambique starts to threaten, especially on the wings. Mohamed Hani as a right back for Egypt. Uh, Mahmoud Hamdi on the left back, uh, Pyramids FC left back. Uh, they were really struggling, I think, handling the, the Mozambican uh, wingers. They were the ones that were providing uh, you know, a lot of danger on the wings. So we go to halftime. Chikinyo Konde, the, the Mozambican uh, coach, doesn't wait to, to try to change the match. He makes, his, makes some substitutions at half. He says that they employed new tactics early on in the second half. And within a five-minute window, the Mambas are up 2-1. The first goal comes from the wings, as was expected. Comes from a cross that Witi, the striker, latches onto and scores. And the second one was all made by uh, the man of the match, Gima. Uh, they play this lovely one-two, breaks into space, gets behind the Egyptian center half, which remember, Mohamed Al-Mun'im, Abdul Mun'im can run. He's fast enough to cover behind. But Ahmed Higazi, no. But they get behind the Egyptian defense, slide on a goal, and they're up 2-1. In the post-match press conference, the coach, Rivitoria, said, yeah, we slept for five minutes, and that's football. You know, in the blink of an eye, things can change. It was just a five-minute lapse of concentration. But I think that's a cop-out. It wasn't just five minutes. Mozambique were creating chances at the end of the first half, and they were chance creating chances at the beginning of the second half as well. I think there's a real... There are real questions about Egypt's ability to defend from the flanks and in transition uh, upon losing possession and having to get back. Uh, at least that's what Mozambique exposed. Now they can make the adjustments, perhaps they're going to change the way they play, perhaps they're going to change the formations, uh, maybe even personnel, and, and that could perhaps be a solution. I'm not saying this is going to be a problem throughout the tournament, but these were warning shots. and we. Mostly everybody in the stadium thought that Mozambique was going to pull off a crazy upset and win 2-1. But at the very last minute, uh, penalty. I, I didn't see if it was a penalty or not. I asked journalists that did say that did see it. And they, saw, they, <laughs> and they told me that um, it was soft, but it was a penalty. Um, and Mohamed Salah, you know, with that trademark run-up that he does for the penalties where he starts like this and he goes around and he hits it. And uh, off the post, and it hits the post, and I'm thinking, oh, no. 
this is going to define Egypt's half guard sword. And it hits, clings off the post and goes in. So a huge, huge sigh of relief. Mohammed Salah steps up again uh, in a big moment. Um, even though I think, I think overall we expected maybe a little bit more from him. Uh, but, I mean, he does have the tendency sometimes to disappear in, disappear in matches for Liverpool, but you you have to keep him on the pitch because he can create that moment of magic at any time and, and anywhere. And he's such a he's such a mental load for the for the defending team, you know, that you have to keep him on the pitch. So so that was a fantastic game. 2-2. I think hats off to Chiquinho Conde in Mozambique, who uh, showed that they're not they're not scared to play against these bigger sides. You know, they, they, they pushed Algeria far in, in World Cup qualifying just before coming up to the AFCON. They pushed Egypt to the limit in this first match of AFCON qualifying, and I think they're going to be a nuisance. They're still chasing their very first uh, win at the Africa Cup of Nations. That would have been a great one to have it against Egypt, but unfortunately it wasn't to be this time around. Um, everybody said it was, from their side, you know, in the press conference, they said it was bittersweet after the match. Um, but I think overall they were proud of their performance, and it's given them a lot of confidence uh, to take on Ghana and Cape Verde in the future. Let's move on to the second match. The second match starts, uh, <laughs> and the criticism against Ghana, since Chris Hewton's been in charge, is, and maybe even a little prior to that, do they have enough to break down the opposition when in possession? Can they score enough goals? Remember, in FIFA World Cup qualifying, at the very last second, they score off a set piece against Madagascar to win. They go to Comoros and they lose. And here, here, uh, they score off a set piece, Alexander Jiku. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. The match starts, um, and unlike the Egypt-Mozambique match, where Egypt were on the front foot at the very beginning, I think Cape Verde were on the front foot from the very beginning this time around. Um, they were so impressive in how they passed the ball, how much courage they had, and they forced Ghana to concede possession. You know, in that in that war of possession. They were the ones that were that had the lion's share. Um, players like Jamiro Montero were, were so good in pulling the strings and orchestrating things from midfield. Bebe, uh, <laughs> Bebe, Bebe, a name I haven't heard in, uh, in a while. I don't follow too much La Liga, but he was really, really good too. And he was doing a good job of combining with uh, Cabral, number seven. Uh, sometimes Bebe would find himself on the left wing. Sometimes he would be the target man and they would switch up. And I think when Cape Verde opened the scoring in the 23rd minute, is it the 23rd? It might not be the 23rd minute. I'm, I'm very, very tired. But when they opened the scoring, everybody, I think, thought it was deserved. Absolutely. The Blue Sharks from, from the island. Um, and they continued to monopolize possession. Slowly, Ghana climbed into this game. And they score a goal that Majid Ashimeru you know, hits the ball, you know, 23, 24 yards out, but it's ruled out for offside after VAR check. And if you remember, Gary L. Smith in the preview on this channel for Ghana was telling us that Majida Ashimeru may be one of those players uh, that might start off in a double pivot, but that can really carry the ball forward, make long passes, and, and shoot on goal. So, so Gary was absolutely right about that. Um, we go into half 1-0 down, <laughs> and the Ghanaians are not happy when we go to the, the media cafeteria room for for lunch or for dinner I should say um, which by the way dinner was not bad this time around unlike yesterday um, we come up for the second half and Ghana starts to make changes they start to climb it back into this game and they score off a corner kick so again 
Madagascar, they scored off, I believe it was a corner kick as well, not just a set piece of corner kick. This time they score off a corner kick again, and it's Alexander Jiku who scores a header. So they're not breaking down the opponent. And unfortunately for them, Mohamed Kudus was injured, and he, and he wasn't you know, a starter for this match. Uh, but still, you can't, you can't base all of your hopes on one player. It's, it's never a recipe for success, right? Even though I do think Kudus is probably capable of taking them far in the tournament if he, if he performs like he did at the World Cup. But he, he wasn't like that. And, and yeah, they score, but they score off a set piece. Alexander Jiku, who, by the way, was man of the match and had a fantastic game in the heart of defense. If Ghana do have a strength, it's probably that, that center half pairing of uh, Alexander Jiku and Mohamed Salisu. Even though the mistake comes from the defense, it's not really them, more Dennis Adoy, but you do wonder if the center halves or the goalkeeper, Richard Afori, could have done better as uh, Cape Verde score in the, you know, the final minutes of the game, and it just goes bananas. And it, that goal... When you're playing at the Africa Cup of Nations in the final 10 minutes of the match, your first match in the group stage, you talk about who's going to step up, who's happy with a draw, and who's going to step up. Ghana thought Andre Ayew was going to step up. When, when, when he was about to be subbed on, first of all, even in the first half, they were singing, Ayew, Ayew, Ayew. He gets subbed on, rousing reception. And the Ghanaian journalists from here are laughing like, ah, can you believe this? They're, they're, I can't believe they're cheering for Ayew. Na, 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 na. Like, we're back to this. You know, Ayu played his first AFCON in 2008 or in 2024. Ayu, Ayu, Ayu. He was okay. I think, you know, he does a great job of competing in the air. He does a great job of galvanizing his teammates. But he's not the savior that Ghana need nor deserve. <laughs> On the contrary, look at the fight that, you know, players like Gary Rodriguez put in at the very end to, to try and nick the ball and, and you know... Uh, I saw a little more willingness, a little more ambition, a little more want to from the Cape Verdean players in the in the very end of the match, especially even even the the Taveras, the striker that was subbed on, the way he was closing down defenders in the last five minutes of the match. I think it really spoke to the spirit of this Cape Verdean team, and uh, and I think they deserve a lot of credit for that. And I think they were worthy winners, two one uh, against the Ghana Black Stars. And so today was a match, or sorry, today was a day where. The Giants of African football all drop points. Nigeria draw to Equatorial Guinea. Egypt draw with Mozambique. And Cape Verde lose, or sorry, Ghana lose to Cape Verde. How about that? How about that for the African Cup of Nations? When we tell you there's no logic to the African Cup of Nations, sometimes you guys don't believe us. But there really is no logic to the African Cup of Nations. Um, it's about performing on the day, on the pitch. No excuses. And uh, I heard excuses from Rue Vittoria. I don't think I heard any excuses from Ghanaians or journalists or coaches or supporters. I think they're just in a state of perpetual frustration. Um, indifference is a word that I heard today. Uh, I spoke to a, a colleague of mine, Sadiq Adams, on he was a, who's a good follow on Twitter if you, if you want to follow a good Ghanaian journalist. And he told me, I said, how are you feeling about today? He said, indifferent. I said, really? Come on, like, you know, we all act like this journalists, you know, and then, and then when it's match day, there's something, you know, we're all supporters on the inside. When it's match day and you, you see, you know, the flag and you hear the national anthem, there's something there, you know, you're not indifferent. You're only ever indifferent when you have no faith in your side. He told me at the previous, <laughs> at the previous AFCON when he saw Ghana lose to Comoros and then when they were eliminated in the group stages, he wouldn't ever come to an AFCON again. <laughs> And he's here. He's here in Cote d'Ivoire. 
And I, I was just thinking, man, what's he thinking right now? What's Sadiq thinking right now? You know what? Let, let me call him real quick. Do I have him on WhatsApp? Let me call. Let me, let me see if I can bother him. This is a live call on a podcast. Let me see if I can call him and see what his reaction is. Sadiq, it's Meher Mazahi, man, from, from Algeria. How you doing? Brother, I ju- I, I'm just recording my podcast right now. I just... I was talking about the indifference of Ghanaian journalists. I just have one question for you, bro. H- how are you feeling right now? I feel very normal. These are things I expected, but you know, the bond between the person and their nation, it's something that cannot be broken. Yes. So the, the heartbreak is there, the pain is there, but obviously it's nothing new. We, we become very accustomed to this. That's why you told me you felt indifferent, yeah? Today, this, is this morning? Exactly. Exactly. It's something that you expect to happen and it will be just affirmed. You're only waiting for the affirmation. Just the hope that kills. Sometimes you have some slimmer hope that something may, may, may happen, some luck may strike. But uh, of course, these are things that majority of journalists expected and it just happened. Thank you, Sadiq. Sorry, sorry for bothering you, bro. Sorry for the cold call. We'll speak to you no soon, bro. Welcome. Peace. Welcome, bro. So there you have it. <laughs> there's a live reaction for you. Um, there's another Ghanaian journalist that was sitting behind me. Ready? Last two minutes. <laughs> We're all watching intently. I promise you. And I'm not gonna. I don't know his name, and I wouldn't name him anyways. But he said, "What did we do to get stuck with these bumps?" And we all just turned around and started dying laughing. I was like, "Come on, man!" I was like, "You guys have Muhammad Kudus if he was playing." He's like, "Even if he was playing, they wouldn't do anything." What did we do to get stuck with these bumps? And that's like, you know, that's, I feel like that's the, even when I spoke to supporters outside of the stadium, there's a lot of frustration. There's a lot of, ah, uh, like, in, yeah, indifference, I think is a good word. Apathy, uh, disappointment, just, I, I don't see how they can climb out of it. What's what's the solution? Firing Chris Hutton and hiring somebody else? Probably, but even then, what's the guarantee that you're going to get it right? So I just wanted to give you that window on what the mentality is for a lot of people that follow Ghanaian football at the moment. We're pushing this a bit long now. We're on almost, almost on 20 minutes. So I'm going to finish with this. Thank you for listening to, you know, day two of the, of the AFCON Diaries, uh, where we're, uh, I love Ghana, but we're laughing at Ghana's pain a little bit. Um, that's about it. Uh, keep it locked. We're going to do this every day. Uh, just going to recap my thoughts. And special bonus in this video, I just... You know, shot a few sequences of what it's like to be, you know, uh, a, a journalist at the AFCON. And so if that interests you, um, you can watch that and you're just going to see it's, it's not really a vlog. It's just like a few snapshots so you can kind of see what it's like to be an, uh, a journalist at the African Cup of Nations. And I think it's like one of the greatest events to be at. And uh, maybe this will give you a small preview of that. So thanks for listening. And I'll talk to you guys tomorrow night or tomorrow uh, or after tomorrow morning. Peace.